0: The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2011 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at FOI.org. Take your Bible tonight and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Now uh, so many times we are asked the question, when does the Christian go to heaven? And I can answer that in two ways. Well, when you die, you're going to heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Second answer to that question is, um, there's going to be a generation, and you know this well, that is not going to die, but at the rapture is going to be caught up, snatched away in the moment, in the twinkle of an eye. So those are the two times that individuals who are believers are going to heaven. Well, the question is, where is the church during the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation? I believe the church is in heaven for a number of reasons. It's mentioned here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 4, that 24 elders... I think when you, or I believe when you see the 24 elders through the book of Revelation, that it's speaking about representing the church. And then I've already mentioned the rapture. We are pre tribulation rapturists. I believe we need to emphasize that more and more and more in the day and age that we're living. There is going to be the catching away of the church, and uh, we are going to meet the Lord in the clouds of heaven, and we're going to be taken to the place that is prepared for us in heaven, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's been mentioned many times, and you know this well, that the church is mentioned in the first two chapters, chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, But after chapter 3, you do not find the church mentioned in the time of the tribulation that's coming upon the face of the earth. In verse number 7 here, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready." Who is the wife of the Lamb? Well, it's the church. It's the bride of Christ. And we see the bride of Christ here in heaven. Another thing, you notice at the beginning of of chapter 19, it says in verse 1, And after these things, after what things? Well, after the time of the great tribulation after these things, and where is the church? The church is in heaven already. And so I do not believe we're going through the Great Tribulation whatsoever, and I know most of you believe the same way. Why will the church be in heaven? Well, we're told over in um, 1 Thessalonians uh, a couple of verses that are very, very interesting. In chapter 1, verse 10, it reads like this, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. This is God's wrath that is coming upon the world during the tribulation. You've heard a lot about God's wrath in the tribulation time, but we are not appointed to that time of wrath. And over in chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath. We are not appointed to wrath. And so we're not in the time of the tribulation. And why is the church uh, not in the time of tribulation? Because God is sparing us from this time of wrath. We are the bride of Christ. And he's not going to put his bride through all that. And uh, then, as we see on into this chapter of uh, Revelation, there's going to be the marriage, and that's going to take place in heaven, and then there's going to be a marriage supper. And I'll tell you when I think that's going to take place as we get near the end of the message. Now, there are three points that I want to make tonight. And first of all is magnifying the sovereign God of the universe And then we're going to see the marriage service, and then we're going to look at the marriage supper. Well, first of all, let us uh, look at the magnifying of the sovereign God, and there's a hallelujah course. In fact, there's four hallelujahs in the first six verses that are mentioned here, and I want to just touch on these briefly. The church is in heaven enjoying praising the Lord. Can you imagine how great that's going to be? We can't, with our finite minds, even come to begin to know and fathom what all that's going to be like. Well, let's look at the first hallelujah, and that's the hallelujah of redemption in verse 1. Uh, John says, salvation, glory, honor, and power be unto the Lord. Well, first of all here, he talks about deliverance. He's praising God for our salvation or our redemption. I believe that's the first thing we want to praise God for when we get into His presence, that He saved us. And uh, why? When you look at throughout the conference and the judgments that are coming on the face of the earth, and we look at our world, those who are lost don't know Him, and we who know Him, such a divide We just automatically praise wells up in us uh, in praise to God for our redemption. And he says here that the group in heaven has a doxology of praise. They're praising God, glory and honor be to Him. And that's another thing that we're going to want to praise God for His glory and for His honor. And then we're going to praise him for his dynamic power, his, or his omnipotence. Great is God's power. And we see this down in verse 6, that we're going to praise him for his power. And then we're going to praise uh, the sovereign God for his deity, especially the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says here, our Lord God, and I think it, I believe it's referring to Jesus as God. So there's quite a hallelujah of praise for uh, redemption here and all that God has done for us. There's a second hallelujah that's mentioned here in verses 2 and 3, and it's a hallelujah for retribution. And it says, Judge the great harlot in verse 2 the great harlot rode the beast in Revelation chapter 17, false religious system, and uh, this host of heaven, we along with it, are praising God for judgment upon Babylon and the Babylonian system. Somebody might say, well, why would you uh, praise God for judgment? Well, it says right here, verse 2, that it's true what is being said here, or that word should mean faithful in the original language. It's true and it's righteous, or it's just. And uh, it's just to praise God for judging the wicked, especially the Babylonian religious system that has brought so much havoc upon the face of the earth and leading people astray. Now, you remember uh, Steve told us in his message on judgment, quoting from Genesis chapter 18 verse 25, he said, Should not the judge of all the earth do right and righteousness? And that is true. The judge of the earth is to do righteous and, and what is right, and that is God. So they praise God for the retribution that He has brought upon the wicked religious system mentioned in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And notice this judgment is forever and ever in verse 3. It's final, it's complete, it's irreversible, and it's permanent. And so when God's wrath and judgment falls, it's going to be just that. Well, there's a third hallelujah here, and it's really a song uh, or a hallelujah of relationship between the host in heaven. Look at verses 4 and 5. And the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah, hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God. Now notice, all ye his servants, all the servants, the church, the Old Testament worthies, the angels, the host of heaven, all ye praise the Lord God, and ye that fear him both small and great. So it's saying here, all of heaven is going to praise the Lord because of our relationship with Him. Can you imagine what glory and what praise that's going to be when we're with the host of angels, when we're with the host of all the believers from the Old Testament times up to this time that believe in God? You talk about a crying and a praising service. I can't imagine anything greater than that. So the hallelujah of relationship. And then there's going to be the hallelujah of God's reign found here in verse 6. And here's how it reads. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude like the voice of many waters and like the voice of mighty peals of thunder. The idea here, it's going to be heaven shaking. It's going to be so loud and deafening as it comes forth, saying... Hallelujah, for the Lord our God omnipotent reigneth. We're going to praise God that He, the Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God, reigns. And then Jesus is about to come back, as you see verse 11, to reign and rule upon the planet Earth in the millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 20. So before we have a marriage service, we have a praise time, a hallelujah time. And before you go to a wedding, I imagine you're praising God for the relationship, if it's a godly relationship, a godly marriage, for those who are coming together in holy matrimony to be joined together to start a new union and a family and to rejoice in the Lord and raise up a godly family. Now the thing here, the second point, is the marriage service. Now uh, here's how verse seven reads, "Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the lamb is come, and his wife shall made herself ready." Now, when it says the marriage has come, really in the relig- original language it should read the marriage has come. You say, well, it hasn't happened yet. Well, I know it hasn't happened yet, but in God's mind it's a completed act. It's already happened. In his eyes everything has already happened, so he says, has come. And even though John's writing uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, in God's mind this has already taken place. Now, there could be a problem here, and we want to find out who is the wife that is mentioned here. Well, you say the wife is the bride of Christ, that's the church. Yes, that's true. But if you were to go over to the Old Testament, Israel is also mentioned as a wife of Jehovah. And so Israel is a wife of Jehovah, and the church is the bride of Christ who will become the wife of Jehovah. Christ. Now, how do you put this all together? Well, just very briefly, Israel is the wife of Jehovah. There's a marriage contract when God made, when God made a covenant uh, with the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 2 uh, mentions this uh, Mosaic covenant that's mentioned. And then in Exodus uh, chapter 19, it begins to spell all of that out. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. But Israel went off into paganism, broke the covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32, it speaks of Israel's uh, idolatrous situation. And she committed harlotry. Uh, you'll remember two years ago, I'm sure, those of you who are here, I believe Menno spoke on Hosea chapter in verses 2 through 5 where, uh, you know, uh, Gomer went out and played the part of the harlot. And so it is an image of Israel's harlotry. And then uh, God said that he was going to divorce the nation of Israel, give her a document of divorce. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 1 and Jeremiah chapter 3 verses 6 through 10 spells this out well the punishment was that god's wrath would fall upon the nation of israel and we've heard that in this conference and uh, menno even touched upon uh, israel receiving the judgment of god but then there's going to be the glorious day that is to come and uh, so when you look at the punishment of god's wrath being uh, meted out upon the nation of israel All you have to do is study Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 35 through 43, and you have the story of Israel being destroyed by God. Well, it doesn't end there with Israel. Israel is going to be remarried and restored unto God. And this is a whole other message, but you can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 16, And the latter three verses, 60 through 63 of Ezekiel 16. And so uh, Israel's called the wife of uh, Jehovah or Yahweh. Now what about the church? Well, it says the marriage of the Lamb has come. Uh, Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. He's the Lamb of God. You want an interesting study, just go through, leaf through the book of Revelation and uh, take a note each time the word lamb is used referring to Jesus Christ. He's called the lamb some 28 times in the word of God. He is the lamb that is worthy. He is the lamb that is to be worshipped. He is the lamb who was wounded from the foundation of the world. He is the lamb that's coming back as the warrior king. He's the lamb as well who's going to show his wrath upon his enemies and the enemies of God the Father. But he's also the lamb who's going to be wed as we see right here. He's the lamb that's going to be wed to the church. Now when you start to take Uh, the wedding here, it's good to go back and parallel the wedding that is taking place here with a Jewish wedding. And there's a real parallel here. And what I'd like to do is just briefly mention uh, four things that are involved in a Jewish wedding, just touch on them, and show you how this relates to the bride of Christ being married to the Lord. Now, first of all, there's the time of the betrothal and it's the father that makes the arrangement. The son doesn't go out, like in this country, and try to seek for himself a young lady who he falls in love with, or he uh, feels like he wants to marry. You know, it's not that way, especially in Old Testament history. It was the father that uh, got together with another father, and they came to an agreement and had a patrol. You've heard the song, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Well, it's the matchmaker in that day. And so the fathers got together and made this. Well, uh, it's said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, that the church, we are a spouse to one husband. We are a spouse to the one husband, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The engagement had to last at least a year, but, you know, in a a Jewish matchmaking situation, the child might have been a very young lady, and the the husband-to-be had to wait for many, many years until uh, they would really have the marriage. And so they are espoused here. The engagement has to go one year, could go many years. But here it says in verse 7, referring to the church, that the church, or the bride, the wife has made herself ready. It doesn't say God is making her ready. The bride is making herself ready. Now, uh, we are set aside, have been sanctified by the Lord time that we came to the Lord Jesus as our Savior but we are in the process of being sanctified. And then ultimately at the rapture, we will have our salvation completed when we are glorified, and that will be the glorification of us and our completed sanctification. Now, how does this process take place? Well, we're purged, And it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, we're washed with the water of the Word of God. As we get into the Word of God, it's the Word of God that is washing us and making us clean. You don't always feel this, but it has a sanctifying process in your life. Now, at the end of that sanctify. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, that as we're presented to the bridegroom, it's going to be a glorious church. The church is going to be without spot. The church is going to be without wrinkle. And the church is going to be without blemish. And that's what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27 says. And that takes place when we are caught up, translated to heaven. And we are in our glorified body. Now, that's what's happening to the bride, but what about the bridegroom? The bridegroom is preparing a place for his bride. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, and where you, 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 and it's individual you, not collectively you, you are going to be. He's preparing a dwelling place for us. I've touched on this in past conferences. The dwelling place must be great. It's going to satisfy everything that we have in our hearts desire when we get to that dwelling. So he's away preparing a place just like the Jewish husband would be preparing a place at his father's house and attaching a house of his own onto the property. And when that's finished, there's going to be the second phase, and that is the bridegroom coming for his bride. Now, the bridegroom, I don't think, just decides he's going to come in a Jewish wedding. I think the father is going to tell him, and determine the time that He is to come. So the Father of the Bride determines the time the Bride will come. And I believe God the Father determines the time when we, who are the Bride of Christ, should come home. This is going to be, again, take place at the rapture. At the rapture, the church, those who are passed away, the dead in Christ, are going to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, and I hope it's the we here tonight, the we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And we're taken to Father's house. And so uh, the groom comes for his bride. And when the groom comes for the bride, there's the bridal party as well. And where are they going to return to? When he comes for his bride, they're going to return to the Father's house. They're going to Father's house. The third aspect of a Jewish wedding is the bridegroom will get married to the bride. The marriage of the Lamb, verse 7. This marriage, and any marriage on earth between believers, it's a union, and this is the way it's going to be with Christ and His church. And the marriage is going to be lived out through the millennial kingdom, and on into the eternal state, you see. The marriage takes place in heaven, but it's preparation to come and uh, live in the millennium and the eternal state. And so this is quite a uh, reunion. Just think, we are the bride of Christ, married to him for eternity. I can't even start to begin to comprehend what all of that must mean. But all I can say is glory, and it's going to be glorious when that all happens. And uh, so after the marriage of the Lamb, or the marriage between a Jewish uh, husband and his wife, uh, there's going to be the banquet. And the marriage banquet, uh, we've been told, last seven days. Well, I picked a Menno up in South Bend, and so I wanted to kind of pick his mine a little bit, because he lives in Israel. And so I said, Jewish wedding, do they have a wedding feast uh, for seven days uh, today? Oh, no way, maybe a couple days. I said, I have another question. Uh, uh, you know, uh, they consummate the marriage, and are there a few days uh, uh, before they really have the banquet? He says, no way, they have it immediately. And in a Jewish wedding... You have the marriage right there, and I've been to uh, a, a marriage in Israel. In fact, I was the marriage of Menno's brother when he Why? What a time of joy. They put him on a chair and they march around, praise the Lord after the service. We don't go home and uh, decide. Well, we'll come back and have a banquet. The banquet's immediately. You go right in. It just blends together, the marriage service and the banquet. It's just like a reception. If you have the reception in the church, you have the marriage, you go downstairs, you have a dinner, you have a marriage reception. It takes place immediately. And so I believe that this banquet is going to be immediate. Now, what about, and this is the third point, last point I want to deal with. What about the marriage supper? The marriage supper, and this is found in verse number nine. It says, And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they who are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Notice you're called to this. You don't just decide to come, you're called. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now, what about the marriage uh, uh, supper? Well, the time of the feast, Jewish custom was the night that the marriage was consummated, you went right into the banquet or the feast immediately after the wedding. Where was the place of the feast? Well, I'll be honest with you, there are two views on this. Where is this uh, feast taking place? The common interpretation by uh, most conservative fundamental scholars is that it takes place on earth in the millennial kingdom. Uh, There are a few others, just a few others that say it takes place in heaven, not on earth. Now, why do they say it has to take place on the earth? Well, they say it has to take place on the earth because you know, the bride and the bridegroom coming back to earth, and they're going to establish the millennial kingdom. There is Israel, who has been saved throughout the tribulation, and there are Gentiles who have come to the Lord at that time, and uh, so they're all going to gather as, together as a group for the wedding feast. Well, I've been studying this out and grappling this for a long time, and I think the feast doesn't take place on the earth as the common interpretation is. I think it takes place immediately in heaven after the marriage. You say, well, where are the guests? I mean, the Old Testament worthies are already there. They have been there for a long time. And I believe the Old Testament worthy, they're the guests, You remember John chapter 3, verse 29? Tribulation saints martyred for their faith. They're going to be there. And so I'm leaning towards believing it's going to be in heaven. Now let me give you some reasons why. One reason, it has to be held at Father's house, in Father's house. Father's house is not down on earth. Second reason, it immediately takes place after the marriage. Marriage. Another reason is it has to take place before the second coming. They've had the marriage and the marriage feast, and by the time you get to verse 11, they're ready to come back and do battle first at uh, the second coming in Armageddon, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. I think the feast has already taken place. Another reason is uh, we have to be in our Already judged, and our work's already judged, and we have the glistening robes of righteousness. So we are already in those robes, and we have to be before the marriage takes place and before the marriage feast takes place. And then uh, there has to be uh, the judgment of the nations. Now, if we're going to have the uh, feast after the judgment of the nations, I just don't feel that it fits in that context. So I believe, uh, and study this out for yourself, see what you come to, I believe it takes place in heaven. Now, you say, well, what about those people who are on earth that uh, go through the judgment of the nations, the nation of Israel, who has been redeemed, who Rennie Showers talked about, who Doug Bookman talked about, and I think all have talked about, they have to come to a place of repentance. This is national Israel. Israel, again, is going to be restored, remarried to the Lord, and become the wife of Jehovah, the all Israel that gets saved when the Lord appears and they look upon him whom they have pierced. And then there's the judgment of the nations. And those who are the righteous, only as uh, Dr. Showers was telling us, goes into the millennial kingdom. But there's something very interesting over in Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6. And the context here is the millennial age, the millennial kingdom. Verse 6 says, And in the mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things. There's going to be another feast that is taking place on earth. This is going to be in the kingdom. The word feast here is the word for banquet as well. It is used as uh, a, a marriage banquet. And when Samson uh, got married, it was used, uh, speaking of the feast for him, in Judges chapter 14, verses 10 through 17. And who would the guests be? Well, the guest here, I believe, is the redeemed of Israel that's redeemed at the second coming on the earth and the Gentiles who have been born again and come into the kingdom. So this is a second feast that is mentioned here. And I lean towards putting the feast and the banquet for the church in heaven with the Old Testament worthies. We've had all that, and then we're coming back, the second coming with the Lord. Well, uh, there you have the marriage, and you have the marriage supper. Now, how does John respond to all this? Well, uh, John's response to all this is very unique in verse number 10. Notice what he says here. And it says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. Who is he worshiping? He's worshiping the angel that brings this message to him to have written down. And what does the, uh, the angel say? See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren. Uh, I mean, if you were getting a revelation from God, and you were John the Apostle, and knew everything that He knew and had written, and you would fall down to worship. And there's other times that He wants to fall down and worship an angel too. This must have been a quite a a a message uh, that broke upon His heart and just lifted Him out of His self, and He must have just said Hallelujah boy, we have not known this in times past, and this is what's coming and awaiting us. Hallelujah. So there must have been more hallelujahs from John. But how does does, uh, uh, the angel communicate unto John? He says, And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, First of all, he wanted to fall down and worship. Response of the angel is, no, do it not worship God. And then he went on to say, the Redeemer, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I believe what he is saying here, the purpose of prophecy is to testify or witness of Jesus Christ and to bring Him glory. And Christ is the central theme of prophecy. Uh, Christ is the spirit of prophecy. He's the subject of prophecy. He's the life of prophecy. He's the center of prophecy. He's the circumstances of prophecy. Wow. Well, you might have heard about judgment tonight, but <laughs> and in times past but at this conference, but uh, we're going to heaven someday. You know, we can walk away feeling that we've been caught up with Him even though we're not there yet. All this that waits us. We can't even begin to imagine in all of our contemplation what it's going to be like. But when you go through times of trials and times of problems, just let a portion like this lift you out of yourself and uh, praise and worship God.